was just thinking this morning, this is my eighth Christmas season at Grace Bible Church. Never run out of material to preach on Christ yet. Don't anticipate it. Last week, we introduced the concept of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. We established that he is God because he receives worship. We established that he is the pre-incarnate son of God because he appears in the flesh. He carries out similar ministries to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for this Christmas season and for a few weeks beyond, we're going to do a study that I've called Backstage Before Bethlehem. This is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ before his birth. What he did to accomplish the redemptive plan of God, he came with specific purposes and missions in each of the dozen and a half or so appearances that we see in the Old Testament. And so today we'll look at his mission, which is to impart saving grace. To impart saving grace. Turn with me to Genesis 16, if you're not there already. The central figure in Genesis from chapters 12 through 24 is the patriarch Abram, renamed by God Abraham. And we have his wife, Sarai, to be renamed Sarah. I'll use both of their names interchangeably. She is also central in that she will be the mother of Isaac, who will in turn father Jacob, who will father the 12 sons who will give birth to the nation of Israel. In chapter 12, God called Abram from Ur of the Chaldees to follow him, and God made Abram promises. He said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the first of several declarations of the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis. It's an unconditional covenant that God made with Abram to give his descendants land, to make of them a great nation, and to make them a blessing, and to give them blessing. There will be more elements to these promises given to Abram later in his lifetime. But the central feature, the necessary component for this covenant is that Abram and Sarai are to have a son. None of these promises can come to pass unless they have children. In Genesis 15, 4, God promises Abram a son, even though he and Sarai have never been able to have children, and they're well advanced in years, long past childbearing age. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. Ten years, a decade, and Sarai decided to take matters into her own hands. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, giving a concubine slave to your husband, this was a practice that was well known in the ancient Near East. It was an alternative to childlessness. We have to keep in mind that in the ancient Near East, your heir was everything. 
He was the hope of the family's future. He was the hope of your future provision. And so Sarai decided to take matters into her own hands. And we should make a little note here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 says that, quote, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. This is speaking of the later birth of Isaac. But I want to point this out here because sometimes we wonder why is Sarah included in the great hall of faith of Hebrews 11 that by faith Sarah herself received. I would contend that she's not included. First of all, the word conceive here refers very specifically to the male contribution to conception, not the female contribution. And the verses before and after this verse refer to Abraham's faith. The promise of a son was made to Abraham. It was to him. And grammatically, this verse can be read, by faith, he, along with Sarah, received the power to conceive. So this is the faith of Abraham, not the faith of Sarah. Now, I will say this, Sarah has much to be commended for. 1 Peter 3 lifts her up as an example of a wife following her husband, no matter what. And in fact, the, Peter says that you will do well to follow her example. But at this moment, This is not Sarah's finest moment. She's decided to not wait upon the Lord to take matters into her own hands by giving her servant to her husband to have a son on her behalf. And I'm just certain that that was going to create all kinds of family harmony and goodwill. I would imagine Abram laying in his tent one night going, this was a bad idea. This is not going to work out well. By the way, there's a connection here in verse 3 to the Garden of Eden. The connection is that the husband is submitting to his wife's wishes and abdicating responsibility, and this leads to a lot of trouble. Verse 3 says that Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian and gave her to Abram. Genesis 3, 6, same Hebrew words. Eve took of the forbidden fruit and gave some to her husband, Adam. It's the same concept. Husbands submitting to their wives turns God's order upside down and trouble is sure to come. Verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is Abram going, "Uh uh-oh, what happened now? Hagar is upset with Sarai because she's carrying the child that she's commissioned now to give up to Sarai. No mother wants to give up her child. And now Sarai is upset because Hagar is upset. And to make matters worse, she blames Abram. You notice what Sarai refers to. She says that she gave Hagar to your embrace. This pictures the intimate togetherness which should happen only between a husband and a wife. And so Abram continues that theme of to your embrace and he tells Sarai in verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Hagar is in your power. Literally in Hebrew, in your hand. In other words, she was in my embrace. Now she's in your hands. There's a transfer But an intimate connection has already been made. Conceiving a child with another person creates an unseen bond which is never really broken. Abram's permission to do to her as you please, listen carefully, 
You might say, well, that's typical cruelty of men. No, it wasn't. This was not carte blanche permission for Sarai to do anything. Literally in Hebrew, do to her what is good. Do to her what is pleasing. Not whatever pleases you, but what is pleasing. Do what you need to do, but treat her in the right way. Solve the problem without hurting anyone if possible. But Sarai didn't do that. Abram said to Sarai, verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power, in your hand. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, the text doesn't tell us what the harsh treatment was, but in a culture in the ancient Near East where all of your provision, all of your safety, all of everything that makes you uh, able to live in a land happens in the context of the family that you're either a part of or the family that you're serving, for her to actually run and to go to the wilderness from the relative safety of Abraham's camp means that this was bad. It was harsh. And now we come to the Bible's very first meeting with the angel of the Lord. And in the accounts of Hagar's meetings with him, we see the grace of God imparted to her in in very clear terms with implications and applications for the saving grace given to us in Christ. The angel of the Lord is going to impart saving grace to Hagar. And in their conversations, we can extract some benefits of this grace, this undeserved loving kindness of the Lord. So we'll just do a few of them. Let's look at the first benefit of grace. We'll call it a future glory. A future glory. The first benefit of grace, a future glory. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, the the way to Shur, S-H-U-R in your Bibles, this was a wilderness region in northwest Sinai, and this was between the southwest portion of Canaan and the, the northeast border of Egypt. So it's between Canaan and Egypt. What is this? Well, it was a route to Egypt. Going back to Egypt, that would have been Hagar's thinking, being able to return to the only home she had known. That's where she's from. And so it would make sense that that's where she's headed. Verse 8. And Hagar, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord instructs Hagar to go back to the oppressive treatment, to whatever was so horrible that it would make her run away. Now, it's right about here that I think I should mention that modern study and scholarship and writing about this event focuses almost exclusively on issues like the ethics of slavery, the treatment of women, how men are horrible and women are oppressed and so forth. Well, It's often examined from a moral standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, even, frankly, as an excuse to dismiss Scripture as valid. See, the Bible condones these things. No, the Bible never condones slavery. The Bible never condones polygamy. And to say that that's the point is missing the point. Listen carefully. The Bible never condones slavery. The Bible never condones polygamy. But the Bible does ask those who trust in God to trust him in the midst of those things, to trust him in the middle of them. What did the Apostle Paul tell slaves to do? If you're a Christian slave, obey your master. Very simply, trust him. Why is this? Because the true believer in God looks beyond the imperfect situations of today and looks to the bright future glory of tomorrow. 
That's what we're to do. In other words, he's giving her hope that this will be, as the Apostle Paul said, a light and momentary affliction. That's the point of the angel of the Lord commanding, return to your mistress and submit to her. These are two imperatives in Hebrew. They're commands. They're just, he just says, just do this. God isn't seeking social justice for Hagar. That will happen in time. It's not because of Hagar's situation suddenly becoming immediately better. That's not the point. The point is endure suffering now because glory is coming later. How do we know this? Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Hagar is going to give birth to a nation through Abraham. It won't be the chosen nation of Israel, but that's probably not on Hagar's radar right now. Anyway, she is a humble servant to whom God has just promised, you will be the queen of a people. You will be the queen of a nation. Now, she's not going to live long enough to see this nation fully formed. She'll see her children, perhaps even her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And so there's an eternal element to this. There's an assumption written in here that bleeds out of this text that long past her own lifetime, in conscious form, on the earth, she will see this promise come to fruition. We'll talk about that in a little while. In other words, in an age long past her own lifetime, she will see God's hand having accomplished this promise. She'll see it. So there's an eternal element here. So by remaining faithful in a difficult situation, she and her child will someday receive the benefits of God's blessing on Abraham. And now the angel of the Lord pronounces a blessing on her and on her child. And this brings us to the second benefit of grace we'll call a listening Savior. A listening Savior. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. For the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, the fact that she's pregnant, this isn't new information to her. She already knows this. But the fact that the child is a son is a revelation to her. Remember, we live in an age of, of, of technology where we can know the gender of a child. That wasn't ever the case. It was always a surprise. And so for her to know that this is a son is a big deal. And she's to call him Ishmael. God hears. That's what his name means. This commemorates the fact that God heard her misery. The Lord has listened to your affliction by the way, when he says he's listened to your affliction, this is just a literary device that means he's listened to the cries to him of her affliction. What does this tell us? It tells us that at some level she had an understanding of and a faith in the God of Abram. That she had at some level taken on faith in him. She cries out to him and he has heard. Sarai didn't hear her. Abram hadn't really defended her. She was quite literally all alone in the world, but God heard her, and in her case, God visited her. We can only imagine how comforting it must have been to be alone in the wilderness on the way to Egypt and to have this stranger appear to her by the spring of water. She's by this spring. Verse 14 tells us it was a well. And she's in this quietness of her time by the well, certainly contemplating her future, She's interrupted by this man asking her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? This man, the angel of the Lord, he knew her name, he knew her place, and he already had knowledge of her. 
And how comforting it must have been that somebody knows me. Somebody's heard me. Somebody's listening. Somebody knows my affliction. And because her God is a listening Savior, Hagar goes down in history as the first woman in the Bible to receive a birth announcement from God and the first woman to receive promises from God in the Bible. Listen, she's in very, very special company. She's in the company of women such as Rebecca and Hannah and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Very, very few. This is awe-inspiring to think about, that the God of creation, the God who is transcendent, who's above all things, he's above all that he's made, that he is a listening Savior, that he hears. How sweet it is that the psalmist in Psalm 17, 6 says, I call upon you, and he gives a reason, for you will answer me, O God. He could crush the universe, not to mention just you, in a moment if he felt like it. And yet, when you whimper in your bed, when you cry a moan of complaint, you have a listening Savior. There's a third benefit of grace. We'll call this one a sovereign God. A sovereign God. I don't think really an adequate presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ can really be made without some mention of sovereignty. That God does what he pleases, how he pleases, with whom he pleases, when he pleases, in a manner that is infinitely complex and infinitely perfect. Ways that we can't fathom at all. And we see sovereignty as part of God's grace here. The angel of the Lord continues his blessing in verse 12. Speaking of the child, the son, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. We get four proclamations about Ishmael here. He's a wild donkey of a man. I I don't know how Hagar may have felt about that. It was like, thank you. I'm not sure how she would have felt. But what does it describe? It describes that he's going to live outside normal conventions. He's going to live in the wilderness. Chapter 21 tells us this. He's not going to be a regular, normal part of society. He's going to be his own man. There will be no one like him. No one will be cut from the same cloth as him. God will break the mold after Ishmael. A second proclamation, his hand against everyone. And you're not surprised. Well, if you're completely different than everyone else, that's likely. He has a fighting spirit, in other words. And because of that, everyone's hand will be against him. That's the result of having his hand against everyone. Have you ever talked to someone that every word that comes out of your mouth turns into an argument with that person? Like, I was just asking what you wanted to eat. You didn't have to tell me my tone of voice was rude. Everything is an argument. Well, that was Ishmael. Ishmael would be a boy who draws lines in the sand and says, step over it. He would be a man who challenges everyone. And the fourth proclamation, he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's going to break the bonds of family loyalty, which is something you just didn't do in the ancient Near East. But basically the attitude is, because he's going to be sent away in chapter 21, you send me away, we're done. That will be his attitude throughout the course of most of his life. Now, the sovereignty of God, listen carefully, is most often seen after the fact, and it should be believed before the fact. Anyone can look back and say, wow, these circumstances all came together to form one plan. That's sovereignty. But the true belief in the depths of your soul in the sovereignty of God that he's orchestrating every single event in time and space, that's the crux, that's the center of what it means to trust God. 
Sovereignty and trust are two sides of the same coin. They go together. Then we trust God when he says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And by the way, Sarai, Sarah, believed in the sovereignty of God. Verse 2, she said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She saw that as God's plan. Look at the examples of God's sovereignty just in this event. I'll give you three or four of them. First of all, Hagar came to Abram because Abram is a liar. Now, what do you mean by that? Abram lied to the most powerful man in the world. Genesis 12 records Abram and Sarai going to Egypt because of famine. Sarah was beautiful. She had an age-defying beauty, so much so that Pharaoh wanted her for himself. And he thought he could have her since Abram said, sure, she's my what? Sister. I imagine Sarai going, really? As she's being carted off to the palace. Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's court, ostensibly to be made ready to stay with Pharaoh permanently and to pad the deal. Pharaoh gave Abram livestock and male servants and female servants. Where did Hagar come from? She came from that deal. Now here's irony. Hagar was part of a deal in which Pharaoh was trying to make Sarai his wife. Instead, God afflicted Pharaoh and his family. Why? Because God already promised, anybody who curses you, I'm going to curse. God afflicted Pharaoh and his family because of Sarai. Sarai was sent back to Abram, but Abram kept all the stuff, including the livestock, the male servants, the female servants. And in the sovereignty of God, Hagar was now part of the drama of God's unfolding plan of redemption. There's a second way we see the sovereignty of God. The angel of the Lord said that Ishmael would dwell over against all his kinsmen. There would be a fighting spirit against his own family. Four generations later, when Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, through Isaac and Jacob, was being persecuted by his own brothers, what did they do to Joseph? Well, living in the land of Midian were Ishmaelites. And Genesis 37, 28 says, And they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, and they took Joseph where? To Egypt. The Ishmaelites' mother, Hagar, had been taken from Egypt and now they were sending a descendant of Ishmael's rival, Isaac, back to Egypt. It was a one-for-one trade. There's a third way we see the sovereignty of God. Abram and Sarai had trusted in their own devices to produce a son, but it wasn't the son that God would produce miraculously. And yet for centuries, the descendants of Ishmael would be a thorn in the side of the descendants of Isaac. Judges 7, Gideon defeats the Midianites who had been oppressing Israel. And and Judges 8.24 reveals that this included Ishmaelites. Psalm 83 says that the Ishmaelites are among those who conspire, quote, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. One more way we see the sovereignty of God in ironic terms. In this story, the Jew, Abram, is the master of the Egyptian, Hagar. But in the coming generations, the Egyptians will be the masters of the Jews. Sovereignty of God. It is a tapestry that is unfathomable. Nothing happens outside the marvelous and the mysterious and the mighty plan of God. Nothing whatsoever Hagar was exactly where God put her to receive his grace and his promise of many blessings. Let me ask you a question. Why did you come to saving faith? 
I don't think we can really fully answer that question because honestly, God sovereignly orchestrated countless events, not just in your lifetime, but in the lifetimes before of those who came before you and before them. These events all interacted perfectly to bring you to the exact moment where the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, would change your heart, regenerate you, open your eyes to the glories of Christ, and offer forgiveness from sin. Anybody who says, well, I came to faith because I figured it out. Yeah, you figured it out because God put you in a place to teach you the truth and to open your heart so that you said, oh, look, I figured it out. God did that. There's a fourth benefit of saving, of saving grace, and that is a seeing Savior. A seeing Savior. We've had the benefit of a listening Savior, but now we observe that He's a seeing Savior. Verse 13 So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. It can be translated, you are a God who sees me. Now, why is this important? In the pagan Egyptian pantheon of gods, if you wanted to get a god to do something for you, you really had to work to get his attention because these gods were fickle. Sometimes they were around. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they traveled. Very often they were asleep. Some legends even say that you had to wake up certain gods from being asleep in the bathroom, sort of, to put it. So to get the attention of your god, you had to perform some sort of great sacrifice, some sort of great feat. It was a constant hope that maybe... Some of the gods will notice me. This is why you had to believe in thousands of gods because you're rolling the dice that one or two of them will look at you. But here, Hagar has been visited by God himself who knows her name, knows her situation, and tells her what she is to do and tells her what he's going to do for her. Hagar has made an assessment of God. He is a God who both hears, verse 11, and sees. Verse 13, what does that make him? Completely different than all the gods she was raised to believe in. This is the psalmist's prayer. In Psalm 913, Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction. Doesn't it help just to know that God sees? That He knows? What a phenomenal thought. God, your Savior, saw your lost state. He saw the consequences of sin in your life. He saw your coming doom and He acted. He acted according to your need. And of course, in the sovereignty of God, he always saw you long before he created all things, long before you existed. He chose you in Christ before everything. This is a way of saying that you've always been, you've always been seen, you've always been known, you've always been chosen for grace and forgiveness. Always. When the book of Ephesians says before the foundation of the world, that's just because that's as far back as we can really fathom. There's a fifth benefit of grace. We'll call this one a protective fellowship. A protective fellowship. So she called the name of the Lord, verse 13, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now the Hebrew in this phrase at the end of verse 13 is difficult. It's a little bit ambiguous. And in fact, it can have multiple emphases. It can include the idea of a question. Has God really revealed himself to one such as I? Have I really seen him who looks after me? Is this possible? What a tremendously beautiful statement. I have seen him who looks after me. Do you see the word play here? It's not just that God sees her. It's that God looks after her. 
There's fellowship, there's care, there's a cherishing, there's a protecting. In the verse 14, therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. There she is at this well, the spring. Be'er Lahai Roy means well of the living one who sees me. The well of the living one, unlike the gods that I was brought up to know, the well of the living one who sees me. Compared to all the pagan gods that she grew up with in Egypt, she calls the angel of the Lord the living one. He sees me. He looks after me. And in fact, Abram believed that she had seen God. Abram believed that God had looked after her. How do we know this? Verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son. She had gone back. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. How do we know that Abram believed her and believed that God had looked after her? Notice what he names the child, Ishmael. Why? Because that's what the angel of the Lord said. She had told him her story and he believed her. Not only now had God seen Hagar, but someone else believed that God had seen and looked after Hagar as well. We put it this way, God sees all people, but he looks after his own. There's a big difference. Many centuries later, in the time of the prophet Hosea, God will plead and beg with an apostate Israel, calling her by a cherished nickname, Ephraim. And he says in Hosea 14, verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. If you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with an unbeliever, you know what you can tell them? If you will come to faith in Christ, he will look after you. He sees you now, but he will look after you. There's a sixth benefit of grace. We'll call this one a sustaining redeemer. A sustaining redeemer. Turn over a few pages with me to Genesis 21. Now we fast forward 14 years. 14 years later, God has now by now changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah in chapter 17. Abram means father of a multitude or father of many, and Sarai means princess. It's the idea, it's a queenly idea. And now God's promise of a child comes true. Now after 25 years of waiting, Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Fast forward another couple of years. Now Isaac is a toddler. Ishmael is about 15 or 16 years old by this point. Verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Sarah saw Ishmael laughing. This is a word that has the idea of mocking, of intimidating. A 15, 16-year-old laughing at, intimidating the two or three-year-old child. In fact, Paul confirms this in Galatians 4.29 when he says, At that time he who was born according to the flesh, speaking of Ishmael, 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, speaking of Isaac. Already, Ishmael is living up to his character predicted in chapter 16. He's a fighter. Verse 11, Abraham, Abraham is father to both boys, and he's rightly distressed. It says he's displeased. It's a word that means he's upset. He doesn't want anybody to be hurt here. But God offers comfort to Abraham that God has plans for both of his boys. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 13, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, it will be through Isaac alone that the promise of a chosen nation will come. It must be a God-created nation, not a nation born out of man's attempts, such as Abraham and Hagar. But now we see a very, very sad scene. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now the sentence structure here builds the sadness of the moment. Abraham first gives Hagar the water, then he gives her the child. What does that say? It says he gave her the water, then he turned to the child and said goodbye. Because although they had, the, the child had come about in unfavorable circumstances, he'd still been father and son for 15, 16 years. And he's saying goodbye. And in the ancient Near East, when you said goodbye, it was usually for a lifetime. He sent her off. This isn't as harsh as Sarah. Sarah said, cast her out. There's a sense of sadness and resignation here in in Abraham. He knows it must be done. God confirms, go ahead and send them away. But unlike Sarah, he doesn't do so with any sense of vindictiveness or anger. He just is sad. And you immediately get the sense of the hopelessness of the situation. It says at the end of verse 14, she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Unlike last time, there's no place to go. There's no plan. She's just wandering. Verse 15, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. This is the idea of weeping uncontrollably at the top of your lungs, all of your emotions spilling out. Both of them now have been in the wilderness for a period of days. There's no more water. There's no more food. They've stopped to rest under a bush. Both of them are nearing complete exhaustion and even to death. And she couldn't stand to see her teenage son suffering. He is all she has. And so she left him and she went, it says, a bow shot away. It's over a half a mile away. She couldn't see him and she couldn't hear him. It was too much for her to bear. She sat down in despair and cried out and wept. Verse 17, here he is again. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. In the verse 17 here, the focus goes to Ishmael. This time the angel of the Lord, called the angel of God here, very definitely God though, he calls out from heaven and look how he lightens her spirits immediately. What troubles you, Hagar? As if 
Of course I'm going to answer. I already said that. Notice the angel of the Lord says he heard the boy Ishmael crying in despair. The day before, he would have ostensibly thought that he's in charge. He is the heir. No little two-year-old is going to take what is rightfully mine. And the next day, and in the days to follow, he's wandering in the desert with nothing but a skin of water and a little bit of food, completely destitute. Talk about a change in fortunes. He's defeated. And he's gone from thinking he could mock the heir of Abraham, overconfidence in a cocky teenager, to seeing the reality that he's still just a slave's son. The angel of the Lord makes two declarations concerning Ishmael. Fear not, for God has heard the boy. That's the first one. And I will make him into a great nation. And suddenly God gives new hope. He gives new light. You have this picture from verse 18. Lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand. In other words, they're hanging on to each other to make it one last little way. And he gives this hope, new life, sustenance. Verse 19. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Last time the angel of the Lord met her, it was about 16 years earlier next to a well. And again, the metaphor of water here appears, the sustenance of new life. There she is by a well again. And in verse 20, and God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Verse 20 is so poignant. God was with the boy from here on out. The rest of Genesis, the rest of the Bible follows Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob and Israel and Israel's kings and then the disobedience of Israel, the restoration of Israel, the promise of Messiah to Israel. Where is Ishmael when all of the redemptive plan of God is happening in all the big ways we see in the rest of the Bible? God was with the boy. All that time, quietly, God was still with Ishmael. And now we see that behind the scenes, God has continued to bless him. Can I put it this way? God does not save only to fail to sustain. The belief in the loss of your salvation flies in the face of who God is. When you came to faith in Christ, that faith came with promises. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There are no ex-children of God. Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Does that sound like something you can lose? Absolutely not. Hebrews 13, 5, one of the rare quotes of Jesus outside the Gospels. Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor what? forsake you ever jesus christ according to colossians 1 and hebrews 1 he is the one who holds the very universe together all of the atoms all of the all of the structure of the universe how much more will he keep the salvation which he so freely gave to you jesus did not say in john 10:28 i give them eternal life and they will never perish unless they jump out of my hand 
He said, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, including you. You couldn't jump out if you tried. There's a seventh benefit of saving grace. We'll call this one a new position. A new position. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was the mother of the chosen nation. Even her name means princess, the mother of a nation that would become Israel. Not so with Hagar. Hagar, on the other hand, her name basically means nothing. It was a nothing name. It wasn't even her Egyptian name. It was Semitic in origin. So it was probably a name given to her by Abraham as he's receiving all these servants and he's just naming them. I I don't know your Egyptian name. Don't care. Couldn't care less. You're Hagar. Move on. Her identity had been stripped from her. She goes by a name that wasn't even the one her parents gave her. In fact, a Hebrew version of the word Hagar would eventually come to mean just a fugitive. Nobody does that. Nobody says, I name my precious daughter Fugitive. She has a nothing name. But what happened to Fugitive? She went back to Egypt to find a wife for Ishmael, and that wife got to work, and she produced 12 sons. Genesis 25 lists the 12 sons of Ishmael and the fact that they became a nation. They first settled and took over, guess where? The wilderness of Shur, where Hagar had first met the angel of the Lord. Ironically, being cast away to a hopeless situation actually made Hagar the mother of a nation. Genesis 25, 18 says, just as the angel had predicted, over against all his kinsmen. What does it mean here? As this nation developed, he was half from Abraham and half from Egypt. And so the Israelites settled the territory of Shur, which is where? Half between Egypt and Israel, right in between He would identify with neither of them and he would become his own people. And Hagar, known to Sarah just as a slave, would be forever after, just like Sarah, the mother of 12 tribes, the mother of a nation. Let me give you one more benefit of grace. We'll call this one a connected heritage. A connected heritage. Why is Hagar blessed by the Lord? Because of her connection to Abraham. I don't know what the day was like when Hagar was brought into the household of Abraham, but any story of slavery from every time period in all of history includes the horrific sadness of separation from family. But if Hagar could have looked ahead, she could have said, that's the best thing that ever happened to me because she's now associated with Abraham. She had blessed Abraham with a son, Ishmael, and what did God promise to all who blessed Abraham? Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. And it's almost as if we can put this in very human terms. God says, oh, Hagar gave Abraham a son. I think I'll give her a nation. That's a return on your investment right there. Hagar is mentioned 14 times in the Bible, and on every occasion, it's in connection with Abraham. Never again is Hagar outside the camp of God's people. She's always associated with God's chosen, Abraham. Every time. And already, a nation that's not the direct chosen nation through Isaac, but that nation is seen blessing because of their connection to Abraham. Eight incredible benefits of saving grace. Now, if, as we said at the beginning and in all of our introductory message last week, if the angel of the Lord 
is the Lord Jesus Christ himself prior to his birth in Bethlehem, we should see that his ministry here foreshadows his coming future ministry. We ought to expect that. Let's walk back through these eight benefits of grace. We're going to go backwards through them one at a time. We'll start at the end and work to the first one. The eighth benefit of grace. Are we going to see the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in a connected heritage? A connected heritage. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is giving a very stern warning that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works that any man can accomplish. And in Galatians 3, he uses the example of Abraham, who was saved by his faith through the grace of God. In Galatians three twenty-seven, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Listen to this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are connected to Abraham by grace through faith. Now, this doesn't erase the distinctions of Jew and Greek, male and female, and so forth. It simply establishes that the ultimate connection we have is through faith. Can I put it this way? When you see Abraham someday, it would be very, very appropriate for him to say, Welcome home, my child. Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist preached, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. To you Gentiles here in Bakersfield, California, could I say, hello, former stones. You are a raised up child of Abraham. You have a connected heritage going all the way back to Abraham by faith in Christ. If, you've, if your family's been in America for longer than three generations, we don't know where we came from. We're, we're just a big old mixture, but you have a heritage that is 4,000 years old. The seventh benefit of grace, a new position. Are we going to see Christ? In Luke 2, shortly after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple and an old man named Simeon who had been waiting for the Messiah, he came to them and he took Jesus into his arms And Luke 2 records, he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Notice that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles and a glory to Israel. Listen, for most of the rest of the world and for most of all of history, your physical heritage mattered. If you were born to slaves, you were a slave. If you were born to a king, you were a future king. Your heritage mattered. But in Christ, you have a new position. You were born a slave to sin, but you were remade to be the recipient of the light of revelation to the Gentiles to become fellow heirs with Christ himself. You have a new position. How about the sixth benefit of grace? A sustaining redeemer. A sustaining redeemer. The first meeting the angel of the Lord had with Hagar was by a well in the wilderness of Shur. She named it the well of the living one who sees me. The second meeting of the angel of the Lord with Hagar was by a well with which he sustained her in Ishmael. John chapter 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman where? At a well. And what did he tell her? He told her her sins. He knew her. He had seen her. And he offered to her to drink of what? The living water of salvation in Christ, which is a well springing up 
to eternal life. It's the same God, a sustaining Redeemer. There's a fifth benefit, moving backwards, a protective fellowship. A protective fellowship. Hagar saw the God who looks after her, who has fellowship with her. God revealed himself in the person of the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, and he established fellowship with her. And she, she marveled at this. She marveled that she had seen God in the flesh. John 1.14 says of Jesus, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Little hint here, you want to see the angel of the Lord in the New Testament? Just read John's Gospel. It's all over the place. 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as He in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The context here is not fellowship among Christians. The context is fellowship, our fellowship, our communion, our reconciliation, our relationship with God through Christ. We have fellowship. There's a fourth benefit of grace, a seeing Savior. A seeing Savior. Hagar called the angel of the Lord the God of seeing. Will we see this in Christ? When Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus and Nathaniel had made the smart aleck comment, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus saw Nathanael coming, this is in John 1, toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no conceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Immediately comes to faith. There's a third benefit of grace, a sovereign God, a sovereign God. Ishmael was the result of Abraham's lack of trust and obedience to the Lord, and yet God is gracious and kind to Hagar and to Ishmael. God completely has remade that situation. He ruled it. He ruled over it. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 20, says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the angel of the Lord. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is an extremely redundantly repetitive way to say Jesus is sovereign over everything. He's the ruler over all the spirit realm. He's the ruler over all so-called great beings, whether they're men or angels. He's the ruler over the future. All things are under his feet, not the least of which is the church of Jesus Christ. There's a second benefit of grace, a listening Savior. To Hagar, the angel of the Lord is the God who hears, who listened to the cries of Ishmael. Will we see this in Christ? Matthew 9, beginning in verse 27, such a touching scene as Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. He heard their affliction. Jesus himself said, Concerning the affliction of humanity that's enslaved by sin, he said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If somebody asks the complicated question, how is it that I can come to God? How is it that I can know Christ? How is it that I may be saved? How is it that holy God can be connected with unholy me? How is it that sinless God can be connected with sinful me? What is the complex formula? What is the the set of hoops I must jump through? No. We have a listening Savior. So what, what do you say to that person? You say, ask. Ask. Because Jesus already said, come to me and I will listen. And the first benefit, a future glory. A future glory. Will we see this in Christ as well? The future glory of Israel and Israel's Messiah now reigning on earth in the millennial kingdom. This is described in Isaiah chapter 60. Listen to this glorious hope. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Listen to this. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And now in Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 5, this text gets very specific about the peoples who will come to worship Messiah who is ruling on earth and giving their tribute to Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Listen to this. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. What a wonderful picture of a future when nations are streaming to Jerusalem to worship Christ. But who are the peoples from Kedar and who are the peoples from Nebaioth? They have a father and his name is Ishmael. And in the coming kingdom of Christ... The sons of Ishmael come to worship Messiah, literally to see face to face the angel of the Lord who saved their father and saved their mother, Hagar. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You can answer truthfully when somebody says to you, who is Jesus? You may answer. You have the right to answer. You have been given the privilege to answer. He is my brother. He is my older brother. You and I are counted forever and ever as the younger siblings of Jesus Christ living in his father's house, which is now our father's house in future glory. Do you believe me when I say that there are benefits to saving grace? Saving grace connects you forever to all of those benefits. But you can't be connected unless you first humble yourself, unless you too are in the wilderness of your own sin. You know, the Apostle Paul 
in the book of 2 Corinthians, while he's speaking to believers, continually reverts back to testing them and saying, giving the gospel to them, saying you need to come to faith, you need to know Christ. He even says at the end of the book, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. He is our great example that in the church, within the four walls of the church, we still warn, we still call people to repentance because I don't know your heart. You may have been at grace for years and years and you still don't know Christ. And so I would call to you that those benefits will be irrelevant for you. You get none of them if you don't first find yourself in the wilderness, hopeless in your own sin, and cry out to God so that the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, might visit himself upon you through the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart and enable you to believe. Then all those benefits are yours. And we don't feel them now every day. When you wake up tomorrow morning, I doubt you're going to say, I've memorized the eight benefits of grace that Steve preached yesterday, and I'm going to float on air with those. We should, but we don't see them now. But someday they will be your greatest reality. They'll be everywhere around you. And so we look forward to that. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for saving grace. How glorious it is, Lord that we who are in the wilderness of our own sin, wandering in the blindness of our own iniquity, deaf to the cries of our own disgusting blackened hearts, Lord, we could do nothing except sit in the desert and wait for judgment. And yet, like the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar and promising blessing and giving her grace that she did not deserve, you have shown into our hearts the glory of Christ revealing God. And so we are here to just say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for saving grace. And Lord, thank you for all of these benefits. We are so richly blessed. All the way to a future glory, all the way to the fact that we will be conformed to the very image of Christ And we will look to and worship for all time, all eternity, our elder brother, Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, whose name we know, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.